I pray this morning as we look into a passage that many of us have read before, many of us may be familiar with, Lord, that our hearts and minds would be open to what it is you have to say to us, that we wouldn't just think that we already know the story, but that we would look deeper into the text, that we would look deeper into your word and allow it to transform our lives. Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope all of you are as excited to be here this morning as I am. Our first Sunday with two services. This is a very exciting Sunday. Uh, First service was actually our bigger service, which was kind of a surprise because we we were kind of expecting that to be a smaller service. So we had a great turnout in our first service. We've got a great turnout here in our second service. So thank you all who served in our first service and now you're attending the second service. Uh, We just want to thank you for that. And as you'll see, uh, we got lots of room here in our second service. We got more chairs we can put out. So uh, this is a great time, great opportunity to bring someone to church with you as we're starting a new series this Sunday uh, called The Art of Neighboring. Now, uh, The Art of Neighboring is based on this book by Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon called The Art of Neighboring. Go figure. Uh, But this book was written by two pastors up in the Denver area. And uh, it's it's, uh, something that I'm very excited about us being a part of because this is not just a series that's taking place here at River Rock Bible Church. Um, In fact, it's a series that's taking place throughout all of Georgetown. And really, it's a series that's taking place throughout the greater Austin area. Over 300, almost 400 churches have come together and said, hey, we want to do everything we can to reach our city, to have the greatest impact. And we believe that neighboring, being good neighbors, uh, is the best way to do that. And so we've come together, and really, this is not meant to be just like a one-time initiative or, hey, we're going to do this for six months and then forget about it. This is meant to be a life-changing experience for not just the people in the churches in, in the greater Austin area, but also for the people that don't go, normally go to church, um, the unchurched. Because we're doing this series now as the church, as the churches throughout uh, the greater Austin area. But in March, you're going you're gonna to see billboards. You're going to see newspaper articles. You're going to see uh, stuff on TV about love where you live. And love where you live, the art of neighboring, is the bigger uh, initiative that's going to take place. And so we have partnered with uh, Georgetown Police Department. The, the police chief, Wayne Nero, is on board. He's excited about it. In fact, when I had lunch with him and I said, hey, we're, we're trying to do this neighboring initiative. He goes, I'm in. I don't need to hear anything else. I'm in. Uh, he was all on board. Same thing with the mayor. The mayor said, you know what? I'm in. Put me down. I'll do whatever you need me to do, whatever, whatever you want. We'll do it. And the fire chief, John Sullivan, said the same thing. So all of our city leaders are on board. Um, all of Austin's city leaders are on board. Art Acevedo, has, you've actually maybe heard him in some of his radio interviews talk about this initiative that's coming up. And so we're really excited because we've called it Love Where You Live because what we want is we want our neighbors, those who don't go to church, um, we still think that it's important to be good neighbors, Right? It's good for them to be good neighbors, and so we want them to actually love where they live, that they would look around their neighborhood and say, you know what, I love living here. I just love my neighbors. Uh, And for believers, we want us to look around and say, you know what, I love unconditionally my neighbors. I love them the way that Christ loved them, and use their, their proximity to them as a way to demonstrate the unconditional love of Christ. So anytime we think about neighboring, uh first thing that always comes to my mind are stories of bad neighbors, 
right? That's usually what we hear about. We don't hear about the good neighbors. Every once in a while, you might see a story about a good neighbor, but usually we hear about the bad neighbors. So I thought I would share a couple of stories of bad neighbors. The first is, this guy says, my neighbors call the police on me if I jump in my pool. Apparently, the sound of water is enough to get them annoyed. And this one's from a police officer. I went to a disturbance call where two neighbors were blowing leaves at each other with leaf blowers. They were actually mad while they were doing this. Um, found a neighbor of mine putting his trash in my trash cans. When I confronted him, he tried to fight me. <laughs> All right, this, this one's one of my favorites. This guy's telling a story about his neighbor. He says, um, she came out screaming from her front porch to her adult son who just jumped in his car. Put your seatbelt on. You've been drinking. <laughs> that one's a little scary. I think I would have taken the keys. And this one's my favorite. It just says, 10 chihuahuas. That's, that's enough if you've ever been around a chihuahua, to know that 10 of them is not cool. So we are excited to be uh, going through this, to be thinking about neighboring. And, and as I read those stories this week, as I started preparing for this message, I started wondering to myself, um, am I a bad neighbor? Am I a bad neighbor? Am I, am I really a good neighbor or am I a bad neighbor? And not in the sense of do I, you know, do I take their trash cans in if, if they're out of town for them? You know, do I pick up their newspaper? Do I help my neighbors move furniture when they need help moving it. Not in that sense, but uh, in the sense that Jesus Christ looks at the greatest commandment and says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He ties those two together. He says that's the greatest commandment. And when I think about loving my neighbor as myself, I started to wonder, am I a bad neighbor? Am I a bad neighbor? And I started thinking more and more about the great commandment and just how simple it is. And what I love about the great commandment is that it is so simple, yet it is extremely powerful when we live it out. It's so simple, yet it's extremely powerful when we live it out. And we're going to look at this passage this morning. We're going to look at, uh, at Luke chapter 10 and what Jesus has to say when he's asked about the greatest commandment. And he affirms that to love God with all you are and your neighbor as yourself is definitely the greatest commandment. And I think often we miss the genius behind that. We miss the genius that Jesus offers behind loving your neighbor because we can look not only to Scripture, but we can also look to the world around us to see that this makes sense, that loving your neighbor makes sense. It's been shown that people who have close relationships with their neighbors, with the people who live around them, actually live longer. Anybody in here want to live longer? I know I do, right? So you want to live longer? Get to know your neighbors. Um, Studies also show, and Wayne Nero can attest to this, that in neighborhoods where people know the first name, at least the first name of their neighbors, crime is 60% less, 60% less. You ask any of the police officers here in Georgetown, which neighborhood has the lowest crime rate? Who who thinks they know? Shout shout something out. Serenata. What else? Berry Creek. What else? Lowest crime rate. Sun City. Sun City. Why? Because they all know each other. Sun City has the lowest crime rate. And, and I talked to Chief Near about this. He said, we actually get calls um, from people who call and ask why the police are there. Or the police, you know, the police show up to check on somebody's house and someone will come out and say, excuse me, are you supposed to be here? You know, because they know who's supposed to be there and they know who's not. And they're like checking on the police. So it's pretty funny. But they've got the lowest crime rate. Not only that, It just 
makes sense. I mean, think about natural disasters. We've had wildfires. We've had flooding around here. We've had tornadoes. And when the systems are overwhelmed, who is it that's the first responders? It's your neighbors. And so it just makes good practical sense. There's a lot of genius besides the spiritual aspects. There's a lot of good things that take place when we are good neighbors. And so we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks. And uh, what blows my mind is that uh, as, they, as you read through this book, which we, we do have for sale on the back for $5, you get the book and you also get this handy little magnet that we're going to talk about in a second here. But uh, as you read through the book, one of the things they point out is that as the authors were kind of coming up with this idea, they had sat down with city leaders and said, what can we do to impact our community as the churches? It was a number of pastors, and the city leaders sat down, and one of them said, uh, start a neighboring movement. Start a neighboring movement. And as they thought about it more and more, they realized that really what the city was saying is just teach your people to do what the Bible actually says it should, that they should do. And that was pretty hard to hear, right? If you could just teach people to do what the Bible says to do, then everything would be great here in the city. And one of the city leaders said this, said, do you really think we can tell a difference between the way that Christians and non-Christians neighbor? He said, from where we sit, we can't tell a difference at all. There's no difference between the believers and the non-believers. Those who claim that they love Jesus Christ and Jesus has told them the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, we don't see them loving their neighbors any better than we see the rest of the world. And so that was kind of a hard thing to hear, and I started thinking about that again this week, and I started thinking, what would our city leaders say? Would they be able to tell a difference? If I were to ask my neighbors, hey, who on this street is a Christian, and who's not based on the way that we neighbor, would they be able to tell a difference? And so there's there's a really big challenge, because we come to this passage in Luke chapter 10, and it's one that many of us have read before. We've read about the Good Samaritan. Usually, if you know one of Jesus' parables... It's probably the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we hear this passage over and over again. We grow up hearing this passage. um, And what we find is this passage, you know, it gets repeated a lot. Well, why does it get repeated a lot? Because it's good. Because it's very good, right? It's, in fact... Some would say it's great. It's a great commandment that Jesus gives. And so we hear it over and over again, and we we become inoculated to it because we've heard it so often. We put it on bumper stickers. We put it on T-shirts. We put it on refrigerator magnets. And before long, we we like, I like the idea of this, but I'm just not actually going to do it. I like the idea of loving my neighbor, but I'm just not actually going to do it because it sounds good, but you don't really know the people that I live next to right? You, don't, you can't imagine the kind of people that you're asking me to be neighbors with. So there's kind of a challenge as we come to this passage, as we look at something that many of us are going to have heard time and time again, but I think it's good for us to look at it. Let's look at Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. Don't miss the power in that last statement. Do this, and you will live. If you could just do this, 
perfectly, love God with all you are, and love your neighbor, then you will live. But instead of the man recognizing that I can't do this by myself, I'm imperfect, there are going to be times when I don't love my neighbor, there are going to be times when I don't love God, I disobey his word, and instead of recognizing that and saying, Jesus, help me to do this, what do we see? The very next verse, verse 28, 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's wanting to justify himself. He's trying to figure out a way out of it. Now, when I look at this passage, the very first thing that I notice is the man's question. The man's question gives us a little bit of a glimpse into his heart and what he's really asking. He says, what must I do to be saved? What he's really asking is, what is the minimum, what is the least amount I have to do and still be saved and still inherit eternal life? And so he's looking, where's that bar? Because I want to get just over it. I don't want to jump too high. I want to get just over that bar. And what we see is that minimal obedience leads to total complacency. Minimal obedience leads to total complacency. This man seeking to justify himself is looking for a loophole. He's looking for a way out. He's probably thinking, look, Jesus, you don't know the people that I have to live around. I've got one neighbor who lets his dog run free in my yard and doesn't clean up after him. You have no idea what it's like to, to live next to the guy who's throwing parties till 3.30 in the morning when I'm trying to sleep and I've got to be up at 5 getting ready for work. You don't know the people that I live around. How am I supposed to love them? And he's looking for a way out. He's looking for a loophole. Now, I know no one here would ever do that. Like, we never look for loopholes when it comes to obeying Jesus, right? Sadly, we do it all the time, and I think what we're going to see this morning is that many of us do it, and we don't even realize that we're doing it. Because there's a big loophole that I think a lot of Christians, myself included, have found when it comes to obeying the great commandment. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. First, I want us to go back to the text, starting in verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. So we have this story of the, the good Samaritan. And what we see is that the Samaritans were the ones who were kind of the outcasts. They were the outsiders in the Jewish society. The priests and the Levites, they were the ones who were up here. They were the high religious authorities. They were the ones, if anybody's going to get it right, it should be the priests and Levites. Yet we see it's the Samaritan is the one who becomes the hero Why? Because he demonstrates unconditional love to the Jewish person, to this man in the story that's been beaten and robbed and left for dead. 
And what we can take away from this is that limitless love leads to total compassion. I love that Jesus says he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. Now, there's a number of theories as to why the priest and Levite wouldn't stop to help. Some people think that they were maybe on their way up to Jerusalem, which was the place of worship. They're coming out of uh, Jericho, which was a city where a number of priests and Levites actually lived. Um, A number of the, the tribes lived there, and so they were going up to worship. And so the thought is that, well, they didn't want to defile themselves by touching a dead body or make themselves unclean and unable to worship. And so they pass by. But when you really look closely at the text, it says that they were coming down the road. Now, this is important because Jericho is about 3,000 feet below the city of Jerusalem. And it's about 17 miles away. So it's a, it's a pretty good climb up to the city of Jerusalem. And so when it says that they were coming down the road, the indication is that they're leaving Jerusalem, heading back to Jericho. So this thought that they just didn't want to become ritually unclean before they go worship doesn't hold water because they're going the opposite direction. They're leaving worship, right? So this would be the same as uh, we get out of here, church Sunday morning, someone's got a flat tire right outside the parking lot. We get in our car, honk and wave and say, good luck, right? It's kind of the same thing. If, like, did you, were you not paying attention to what, <laughs> what Jesus said, you know, that you ought to help people in need? And furthermore, what we see is when you look at the tense of the verb that they saw and then passed by on the other side of the road, the indication is that they noticed the dead body, they changed lanes to get over and see this man who's half dead, they look at him, and then they change lanes and they continue on in their way. These people, the priest and the Levite, they had stopped to see, to look, they got a closer look, and then they kept on going. And it's the Samaritan, the one that would have been the outcast, the, kind of the bad guy in most people's mind at this time, who stops and shows compassion. And this is where I think many of us find the loophole. Because we read this story, and we see that Jesus says that, hey, anyone who is in need is your neighbor, and you ought to neighbor them. And when I think about that, I, I think, you know, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience, and I think he's, he's got the presupposition that they are already loving their literal neighbors, that they've already got that down. That's neighbor 101. And so he's going to give them the grad level definition of a neighbor. And he says, okay, you're good at loving your Jewish neighbors. Now, what about those who don't look like you? What about those who are different than you? Let's expand that definition. And so he says, you need to love unconditionally, limitlessly, anyone who's in need. You ought to neighbor everyone. But as Christians, what we've done is we've taken that and we've said, oh, you know what? Jesus says that anyone who's in need is my neighbor. So when I go overseas, when I go to Haiti and I help those little kids who are in need, then I'm neighboring. When I'm helping that mom on our sports team who's hurting because she's going through a divorce, then, then I'm neighboring. When I help that person at work who's been sick by bringing them a meal, then I'm neighboring. And that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. All those things are neighboring, and all those things are faithful to the text. But what happens to many of us, myself included, is that we think those things, and we think, well, as long as I'm doing that, then I'm neighboring, yet we ignore the people that are closest to us. We ignore our literal neighbors. What if? What if we loved our literal neighbor? What if we took the great commandment literally and we began to love our literal neighbors? 
when I think about neighbors, I think we kind of, we can put them in three categories. We can think of them as strangers, acquaintances, or in relationship. And in just a second, we're going to talk about how we progress in there. They're either strangers that we don't know who they are, they're an acquaintance that maybe we know their name, or we're in relationship with them, that we know who they are, we know what their fears are, we know how to pray for them, we know what's going on in their lives. So one of the ways that we can try to identify where we are with our neighbors, if you'll open up your bulletin, you'll find in there what's called the block map. This is the block map. It looks like a tic-tac-toe board. I like to call it the chart of shame, and you're about to find out why. So as you pull out your block map, what you're going to see is your name here, right? Your house is here in the middle of this tic-tac-toe board. Now here's the challenge. I want you to take the next couple minutes and name the eight closest neighbors to you, right? If you can name the guy down the street that's four houses down, um, that doesn't count because he's not the eight closest to you. I want the eight closest to you, not someone that you happen to know their name because your kids were on a sports team together, but the people who live closest to you, can you name first, at least first name for your eight closest neighbors? If you need a pen, there's some in the aisle. I guess we'll let couples work together, or else husbands would be in big trouble. Bingo? All right. All right, how many of you can raise your hand, keep it up? You got all eight. You can name all eight. Your eight closest neighbors. I, I get to cheat because there's, no, there's not two houses next to me. They haven't been built yet. So No, I'm just joking. So we got one. Anybody else? All eight? How many of you got at least, okay, two? How many of you got at least five? That's pretty good. That's better than the first service. Congratulations. So as we look around the room, what we see is that most of us here don't even know half the people that we live around. We don't even know half of our literal neighbors. Now, I don't know about you, but when Amanda and I first did this about a year and a half ago, after we read the book, we put together the map And we realized that there were a lot of blank spots that we didn't know. And I have just a little bit of competitiveness in me that I looked at those empty spots and I was like, oh no, I cannot have an empty spot. Like if you're, if you've ever been with me and, and I like in the bulletin, if there's a blank and I don't get the blank, I'm going to the pastor afterward. Hey, I missed the blank. What was the blank? You didn't give me the blank. I need the blank. What's the word that goes here? It's got to be filled out completely. So I had that competitiveness that, man, I'm going to learn their names. I'm going to go and I'm going to fill up this block map, right? And so the challenge is, as we leave here today, I want to encourage you to take that block map and use it as motivation to take the, the easiest and the hardest step at the same time. It's both the easiest and the hardest step to walk across the street and say, you know, I've lived here for a while and we've waved at each other, but I've never, I've, I may have ask you your name once, but I don't remember what your name is. My name's Charlie. What's your name? And just reintroduce yourself and move from stranger to acquaintance. Because here's what we're going to see is uh, we've got a couple tools to help us move from stranger to acquaintance and acquaintance to relationship. First, to move from stranger to acquaintance, we just have to get to know their name. Because if you're going to love your literal neighbor, if you're going to love someone limitlessly, don't you think it helps if you actually know their name? I think that's a good start. So we're going to start by just getting to know their name. The second step is they become an acquaintance. And in order to move from acquaintance to relationship, we might do something like throw a block party. 
So we throw a block party. We get our neighbors around. And this is where the beauty of community groups comes in. If you're not in a community group, I don't know what's wrong with you. We talk about it every week. You got to get in a community group. Because here's what you can do. You invite your community group over. You let them man the grill. You let them man the drinks. And you schmooze with the neighbors. And the next week, guess what? You go to someone else's house in the community group. You man the grill. And you let them schmooze with their neighbors. And you help each other do this. You help each other get to know each other's names. Plus, if nobody from your street shows up, at least you got your community group there to have a party. Uh, It works out great. And then the last step is relationship. This is where you move from, hey, we know each other, I, I know your name, I know who you are, we've had a party together, to why don't you come to our house and have a meal with us? Let's sit down and, and tell me your story, and I'll tell you my story. We get to know one another, and I get to know a little bit about you, who you are, where you're from, where you grew up, what your background is, what's going on in your life. And now we're in relationship. And it all starts just by getting to know their name. Just by getting to know their name. Because there's a big difference between, hey, Bro, hey, man, it's a big difference between that and, hey, Mike, and once you go to, hey, Mike, then you move to, hey, Mike, how's it going? And once you get through, hey, Mike, how's it going, a few weeks later, you're saying, hey, Mike, how's it going? I noticed your son's car is in front of your house again. Did he move back in with you guys? Is everything okay? Man, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And you've moved from stranger to acquaintance to relationship just by getting to know their name. So I want to encourage us. Man, we we often find that loophole and we say, look, as long as I'm helping anybody in need, then I'm doing this neighboring thing. Well, the only problem with that is that when everybody's your neighbor, then nobody's your neighbor, right? And so we find ourselves in that minimal obedience. Like, oh, well, I'm, I'm doing the minimum. I'm loving everybody but we're not really loving anybody. We want to be a people that love people limitlessly and demonstrate limitless compassion to them because that's what Jesus Christ demonstrated to us. Acts 17, 26. This is a verse that Amanda and I, uh, we have memorized. Uh, We have, at one time, we had an alarm set on our phone for 526 every day. Acts 17.26, military time is 17.26, so 5.26 every day. Uh, I would come home, and this was right after we moved to Austin, right after we moved to the area, and we didn't know where we were going to plant a church. We had no idea. So we were just asking God, where do you want us to be? And we knew that he had a place for us. And the same thing happened once we knew it was Georgetown. You all know how easy it is to find a house to rent here in Georgetown. Um, That was a joke. It's not easy at all. So we were trying to find a place to live, and we're just praying, God, just put us in the right neighborhood, wherever you want us. Let us find a place there. So we started praying this verse. Acts 17, 26 says, From one man he made every nationality to live over the whole earth, as has de- and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And so we took this verse, Acts 17, 26, and we said, look, God has determined the time and the place that we should live. God knows where we're supposed to live. God knows who our neighbors are supposed to be. And he's going to put us in the perfect spot at the perfect time. And so I want to challenge you guys as you start thinking about your neighborhood, what you have to realize is that you don't live in that house 
You don't live in that apartment. You don't live in that neighborhood because it's in a good school district. You don't live there because the house has the exact number of rooms that your family needed. You live there because God determined that you would live there. And you, your neighbors live there because God determined that they would live there. In that second verse, 1727 says that, uh, that when they reach out to God that they might find him even though he's not far from them. Many of your neighbors are going to begin seeking God. They're going to have a moment of crisis in their life that maybe they've never gone to church, but something's going to happen where they're going to start reaching out for God. And God has placed you there so that you can be the handles, that they have something to grab onto to help guide them in the right direction so that they would be able to grasp onto God. I think when you start thinking about your neighborhood in this way, you're going to drive in and you're going to see your neighbors in a different light. Things are going to change. Things are going to be different because we no longer see them just as the the people that throw the wild parties, but they're our neighbors that God has called us to love limitlessly. What would it look like for us to make these small changes to be more present in our neighborhoods? What would it look like? We're not a big church. We're not a big church, but on average, we have about 100 adults on a Sunday morning. If every single adult in here got to know their eight closest neighbors, and we're going to cut the number in half, we're going to assume everybody's married and we'll do it by household. So let's assume there's 50 households, and you all get to know your eight closest neighbors. That's 400 people that would experience the unconditional love of Jesus Christ, not because we're out trying to convert them, but simply because we're loving them unconditionally as a neighbor. Now, imagine expanding that to all the churches in Georgetown. Now, imagine expanding that to all the churches in the greater Austin area. What could God do if believers began to take the great commandment literally and we loved our literal neighbors? What could God do? I keep coming back to this question, am I a bad neighbor? And uh, something that I, I... that just really hit me this last week is that, yeah, I help my neighbors, I, I do nice stuff, I don't throw wild parties, so I'm a pretty good neighbor. But when it comes to what Jesus would say is a good neighbor, am I a good neighbor? And I think about that limitless love, that unconditional love. And what strikes me is this. Uh, I read a book called Un- Unchristian, and it's, it's by uh, two guys, I forget their names, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And they had interviewed non-Christians to try to get their perspective. What is a non-Christian's perspective of Christians? And overwhelmingly, they found that non-Christians feel that Christians are insincere and only concerned with converting others. Only one-third of non-Christians believe that Christians actually care about them. Only one-third of non-Christians believe that Christians actually care about them. When we do this neighboring movement, this is not about I'm going to be your neighbor so that. I'm going to be your friend so that. Yes, our desire would be that every person would put their trust in Jesus Christ. But if we go out with an agenda other than just, hey, I want to get to know you. I want to love you unconditionally. If we go out with anything other than that, people are going to sniff that out and they're not going to want to be a part of it. They're going to say, you just want to be my friend so that you can put another notch on your Bible. We've got to be careful. We've got to look out for our, our ulterior motives. Yes, ultimately that is our desire, but we have to start by being good neighbors. 
just being good neighbors and let God work in their lives. Let God work through the conversations that we have. Don't try to force anything uh, in a way that, that makes them feel like, oh, well, I'm just a target. I'm just a mark that they're going after. We want to love them unconditionally. One of the saddest stories in this book, Unchristian, is when uh, they, they're talking to a young man who says, you know, I moved into this neighborhood. One of our neighbors invited us to a Bible study. And I told him, no, I wasn't interested. And I never heard from him again. That doesn't sound like limitless love to me. We want to demonstrate the limitless love of Christ. We want to continue to reach people. We want to love them literally. We don't want to put stipulations on our friendship. They'll sniff that out. The genius of the great commandment is that it is so simple, yet it is so powerful if we would just act on it. The thing that we can do to have the biggest impact on our community is simply to live out the great commandment, to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors. I want us to take two minutes in the next couple seconds here, and I just want to challenge you. Maybe this morning you've realized some things about yourself. Maybe uh, you're like me, and when I started this neighboring thing, I got to admit, I had ulterior motives. I thought I was going to go and save my entire neighborhood, and I had neighbors that were turned off by that, and I realized that that wasn't right. Um, Thankfully, God moved us to a new neighborhood, so I get to start over. Uh, So... Maybe, maybe you've realized that, oh gosh, you know, I, I really was kind of just being their friend so that they would become a Christian, and that's, that's not what God calls me to. God calls me to just be a good neighbor, to love them and to let him work in their lives, not me force something on them. Um, so maybe you just want to write a little bit about that. Maybe God is saying to you, hey, it's not okay that you don't know your eight closest neighbors, and you just want to commit to, I'm going to get to know my neighbors this week. I'm going to go this afternoon and ask their names. Maybe, maybe you were able to name all eight, and God is saying, expand your circle. Go for 10, go for 12, go for 16. How many people on your street can you get to know and be in relationship with and love them unconditionally? I don't know what God is saying to you, but I just want us to take a few minutes here and uh, think about what God is saying to us and what we will do about it. Let's take two. I just want to read one last quote from the book, Unchristian. It says, What we learned is that relationships are key, not just in leading people to Christ, but also in helping them be transformed. The sad thing is that when we, as Christians, go out and love people without an agenda or the possibility of getting a return for our time, this is considered revolutionary. Should not be the case. We are called to love unconditionally the same way that Christ loved us. And so our challenge as we leave here today, my, my prayer for you is that you would go home, that you would look at that piece of paper, and you would say, I'm going to get every name filled out by next week. Uh, as I mentioned-